0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number eight. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kirstie Agard. She is the Henry and Emma Meyer Chair in Obstetrics and Gynecology Professor and Vice Chair of Research Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Division of Maternal-Fetal Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. She also happens to to carry three other professorships. She's a professor of molecular and cell biology, molecular and human genetics, and molecular physiology and biophysics. So clearly, she has had a long history of educational endeavors that have allowed her to carry four professorships, which is very uncommon. It's a testament to her quality. She also has a history of obtaining a PhD in immunology if everything else wasn't enough. Dr. Agard's professional interests led her down a path that aligns with where I was hoping to go with this podcast. She is a microbiome researcher, specifically of mom and baby, and she also is very interested in the in-utero environment and the epigenetic effects in fetal programming and development, which to me are critical aspects of human health risk if we look at it from the headwaters of disease, as opposed to we wait for the disease to show up. If I tell you that this conversation with Dr. Eggart was only interesting, I'd be lying. It was absolutely fascinating. We take a deep, deep dive looking at the world of mom and baby via the placenta, the microbiome, the breast milk, and other avenues of Communication between mom and baby. Now, we don't generally think of communication between mom and baby while baby is inside mom. But it's very clear to me, and I think Dr. Agard uh, says this very well, that there is subtle communication happening between mom and baby through various mechanisms that have been around for thousands of years. And we learn that what's really happening is mom is communicating what the world's going to look like. When baby gets out, is it going to be a world full of bacteria and trauma and problems, or is it going to be a really safe world? And it may sound sort of crazy, but I think this is exactly what the system was set up to do, to communicate the external environment to the baby via mom, via signals that we're now just starting to understand. And Dr. Agard's work really helps us understand that. When we think of onset of disease in humans, whether they be children or later as adolescents or adults, there are reasons as to the why these diseases occur. And whether it's the developmental human origins theory or hygiene hypothesis or whatever else we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, it is ultimately the controllable aspects of our existence that we need to focus on. And in this podcast, Dr. Agard lays out what is controllable. Diet, per se, is the biggest and most controllable aspect of human health, whether it is mom's diet or infant's diet or a child's diet. We need to focus on that which we can change and control to help humans have the best existence while on Earth. Let's look at the first 1,000-day study by Dr. Tavares, T-A-V-E-R-E-S, at Mass General. They looked at roughly 1,600-plus women, 1,000 in intervention arm, and 600 in the usual medical care arm. And their goal was to find out what was the reduced risk of infant weight gain based on the dietary intervention. They had two goals, to promote the adoption of healthy behavior in the women and their infants and to make systematic changes in the clinical care the women and infants received. The systems level component of the intervention included, for example, standardized obesity prevention training for pediatric clinicians and staff, close tracking of infants' weight gain screening, pregnant women for adverse health behaviors and social determinants of health, and providing educational materials and text messages to families that promoted healthy feeding and sleeping behaviors of the infants. In addition, women in the intervention group received individual support and coaching during pregnancy And the first six weeks postpartum on diet, physical activity, sleep, and stress reduction. And what they found was a 54% reduced risk of infant excess weight gain by six months of age and a 40% reduced risk of infant weight gain by one year of age. So the study basically is looking at a cause and effect situation where if you can intervene in the quality of nourishment going in plus changing in physical activity and other stressors, you can change the outcome of the child. It doesn't answer the mechanism behind it. And so I really am interested more in the mechanistic finding so that way once we understand the mechanism, we can encourage more people to make decisions that are in their best interests for health for mom and for health for baby. So the question that I pose to Dr. Agard is, where does it all start? Or at least where do we understand today where we think it all starts with respect to the infant, the microbiome, the breastfeeding, the weight gain, all of the upstream antecedent risk factors, triggers, or whatever you want to call them, what are they? and how do they therefore affect the outcome that we're looking for that hopefully is healthful and not disease-ridden. And so during our deep conversation, we look at some of what I call the evolutionary or upstream targets of where we may have effective signaling or ineffective signaling between mom and baby. And do we have an ability to change These outcomes? Are there news-to-use situations that pop up where we can say, hey, if you do this or that, that risk will go down? And that's critically the understanding that we all need, because if we do understand the news-to-use in risk factor reduction, we can really have an outcome that's beneficial to the child and therefore to mom. So today, we start a series of conversations with different Experts looking at the microbiome in specific, but also at breast milk and at communication between mother and child and what can we do to alter the outcome of our children right from the get-go. And Dr. Agard was chosen principally to be the first speaker in this series because she comes primed with some of the best data And from my perspective, evolutionary understanding as to where we have been and where we are going. I love the way she approaches the topic, and I love the way that she sees the future. And so with all that as the introduction, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Agard. And let's get to it. Good morning dr. agard and thank you very much for joining me on the dr m 's women and children first podcast i'm so grateful to have you here with all of your fantastic knowledge and research experience and we 're going to touch on a bunch of that today so welcome
1: well thank you it's uh it's a pleasure to be here and and you know I always try to remember i'm i 'm just a, a doctor and a scientist doing the good lord 's work so Whatever knowledge we bring, um, I'm happy to share.
0: Well, I'm so grateful to have you because I know you have a lot to share after reading a lot of your research and your thoughts on different papers. So let's get started. So I'm going to read a beginning section from the Lancet paper you wrote last year. Quote, the developmental origins of health and disease hypothesis encompasses a substantial body of evidence which temporarily and functionally link maternal exposures to adverse outcomes in her offspring, largely obesity, metabolic disorders, cardiovascular disease, and behavioral outcomes via meaningful and persistent modulations in postnatal gene expression resulting from epigenomic changes. More recently, many similar observations led to the genesis of the hygiene hypothesis, which alternatively, suggests that it is a lack of exposure to microbes early in life which primarily predisposes offspring to developing not only these same adverse outcomes but atopic and allergic diseases later in life. The convergence of thought encompassing both the DOHAD and hygiene hypothesis has led to several teams of investigators query whether there is or is not a mechanistic link between a maternal exposure resultant perturbations of the offspring microbiome and a risk of later in life disease, end quote. So now we know that the most diverse microbiome in humans is found in the GI tract. The gut biome has profound, but not completely yet understood metabolic and immunologic effects on human health. This fragile and dynamically shifting ecosystem begins at birth and is shaped by external factors, many of them. The maternal and therefore child's microbiota are critical for mom to gain weight, have immune solvency and protect against infection. We know that the gut microbiota of mom during pregnancy is also different between women with high or low gestational weight gain. But where does it all start? Scientists for the last decade plus are now focusing their attention on the distinct evolution of the neonatal intestinal microbiome. It's evolution beginning in utero and during early infancy. And this is where your work really comes in. Dr. Agard, your research has looked specifically into the maternal microbiome, which is inherited by the offspring. Can you tell the audience, where does it all start? How do we define maternal microbiome in our current times? And then let's really discuss your understanding of a non-sterile placenta evolutionarily, how that affects us, baby's immune priming tolerance, and what they learn about the external world in utero. So with that beginning, I'm gonna turn you loose because I know you have a lot to say. (laughs)
1: So I think if I knew um, from whence uh, our microbiomes arose, um, I would be talking in Stockholm um, instead of on on this podcast. But um, let's kind of piece this together because I do think that this has turned into one of those um, classic uh, situations in science in which people are trying to to you know pit this as a as you know, two opposing viewpoints. Um, some people have used, it's a knife bite. And, and I don't think that that's A, accurate, and, and, and B, um, does good service to a lot of really, really thoughtful and good work. So why is this problem of, you know, are babies born sterile or not such a controversy? Well, I'm gonna wax poetic and say the reason why I think our work, which is really grounded in very, very strong, and I would argue kind of conservative interpretations of of clean data, is because I think it threatens at its core some of our long-held beliefs uh, in humanity. So whether you arise from a Judeo-Christian tradition or you arise from a Muslim tradition, I think that the roots of our understanding of the origins of life Um, are dependent upon this view, this paradigm that we've shaped over time, that we're born pure. And if we're born pure, we will die pure. And there's salvation in that. And I don't want this to turn into a Sunday morning sermon, but I think that that construct is one of those biases. Some people call them implicit biases or learned biases or, or whatever bias it is that we're taking into the science. And I think we have to back off from that for a minute and think about what is the role of communication between a mom and her developing fetus?
0: I think that's the key right there, right? So it is a communication-centric environment between mom and baby. Your your child is an amalgam of genes from half mom and half dad half those genes are foreign to mom. So therefore mom's immune system may not like them. So there are shifts that occur there to allow the baby to be established and maintained. And then once that child starts to grow, we now see this communication centric environment. So your work initially had seen that the, the womb wasn't technically sterile, right? But clearly okay. it's not pathogenic or logic because therefore right. there would be bad things occurring. So what do you think the mechanism is of, of microbes, whatever they are in that region? Is that priming tolerance? What are we looking at?
1: Yeah. So I think let's focus on really two things. um, And that is development of the metabolic system and development of the immune system. So, and those two are, are actually intimately related. Um, So, Let's take a step back and, and talk about the data that long preceded us. So Andy Onderdonk is, is one of the world's premier microbiologists and he's at Mass General Hospital. And in fact, my husband trained under Andy Onderdonk. And he, he's truly an absolute whiz um, at what he does and has floors of space dedicated to special incubators and conditions in which he can cultivate out organisms. Well, back in, in 2006 to 2008, he took on an interesting question and he approached it very naively as we did. Um, we, when we took on our metagenomics of the placenta question, we were using the placenta as a, as a negative control. We didn't expect to find microbes in there. And Andy did the same thing. And he was working um, on a study called the ELAM study. Um, and in that study, they cultivated right around 1300 placentas from women who delivered preterm. Some of those were cesarean delivered. Some of those were vaginally delivered. um, Some of those were indicated deliveries, Some of those were spontaneous preterm births. But what he found was that in 75% of the vaginally delivered placentas and 50% of the cesarean delivered placentas, he could cultivate out microorganisms. And, And in fact, When we, you know, later kind of matched up what we were able to pull out metagenomically with what Andy was able to cultivate, they match up pretty darn good. So so a lot of people say, until we published our placental microbiome paper in 2014, no one had ever thought, you know, that the placenta wasn't sterile. And that's just frankly untrue. Um, Immediately preceding our work, um, Indira Mysa Ricard's lab at Washington University used light microscopy and interestingly showed um, that intracellular bacteria were located in what appeared to be um, both macrophages and some other cells of the placenta. And then we came onto the scene and said, well, we're gonna take a large cohort of placentas, over 325, and we're gonna just ask a simple question. Can we detect metagenomically evidence of microbes within the placenta? And in fact, we could. But we made three caveats on that observation. Number one, that they were low biomass. They were a small number. And we said at the time, we actually think that may be really important because how those microbes get pruned down to remain low biomass may be incredibly important. The second thing we said was it was a unique community. It was unlike any other community, in other words, It did not faithfully recapitulate the vagina. It did not faithfully recapitulate the mom's oral microbes. It did not faithfully recapitulate her gut. It was closest to the oral community of the mom, but that was really done at a higher level. And um, so it was unique. It was low diversity, meaning it didn't look anything like the gut. In fact, nothing on the human body looks anything like the gut. Um, it did not have the range and the numbers of different species, and of those that were present, it didn't have super high numbers of of all of them. And the third caveat we we made um, that we stand by today is because we metagenomically characterized something doesn't mean it's alive, right? And that may actually be important. Now it wasn't also it was clearly not chewed up pieces of contaminated microbial DNA either. Um, but but we've made no claims about whether it's alive. Others, as I mentioned, including Andy's work, have been able to cultivate it out. But whether you can cultivate it out organisms at in a 30-week delivery and you can't in a 39-week delivery, I'm not sure we, we really know. And we've argued, I'm not sure we really care that much. Fast forward eight years later, And we and others have done a lot of work in between that have continued to push this notion that there is this low biomass, low diversity, low richness community, but present nonetheless. And so the question becomes, what is its role? And and the the correlate to that question is, why is it so low biomass? What are the mechanisms that stay in place? So I'm gonna take a step back about 25, 30 years now to when I was a, getting my PhD in immunology. And one of the things I, that really came home to me in, in my work um, as a graduate student was that uh, there is something really important about different dosages of pathogens and things that we see as perfectly healthy. It, it's common, it's almost like the mama bear approach. If it's too little or it's too much, you don't trigger the immune system to do what it wants to do, especially during that time of development. We think that the overriding benefit of having these low biomass microbes within the intrauterine environment, and I'm gonna talk a little bit more in a minute, that's a beautiful and elegant work from Susan Lynch's lab and Blanche and Boo's lab, is because it probably is important for immune tolerance. Why is that so important? Because when any fetus is born into the world, it's going to be exposed to an abundance of microbes. It's going to come at it through the skin, through the oral cavity and populate out its gut. And it's not only going to be its mother's microbes that do that. As it emerges into the world, it's going to see more and more. How does it prevent from having this overwhelming immune response to this insult of microbes as they come in? Well, we think that's where tolerance comes in, which says when you have kind of lower levels of a potential pathogen or something you, your body, have never seen before, um, your immune system is going to become educated to it. So it will tolerate it later on. So it can know when something is a danger it's never seen before and when something is non-danger. Some of us think of it as friend and foe. And so we think that that development in utero in the womb is important for understanding who our friends are and not as important as understanding who our foes are, which really dispels, I think, this myth that sits out there that says this fetus is kind of, you know, grows up in this protected environment where the placenta is a barrier. We have no evidence the placenta is a barrier. It's not a barrier against viruses, right? They, we know they transmit at low rates. Another question: Why do they stay low? And it's certainly not a barrier against metabolic communications from the mom because all of its nutrition has to come across that placenta. So I think it's really um, uh, morphed into um, a phrase I use quite a bit now, which is a womb with a view. The fetus is, is developing in a womb with a view of that outside world. And that has to include those commensal microbes. Whether they come in whole, alive, and colonize that fetus as a rule or an exception to a rule, or whether they, they come in pieces so the developing fetal immune system can develop kind of microbiome fitness early on in its development, that we don't know. So I'm going to talk about my good friends, Susan Lynch and uh, Florajan, whose labs work. So they've done some very bold and really elegant um, and courageous science. They looked at um, uh, human uh, fetal tissue under IRB approval from the mid-trimester of pregnancy. And they were able to show using scanning electron microscopy, cultivation, um, metagenomics, that the fetus, the human fetus has microbes in its gut. So, and whose work really recapitulated the same families of microbes that we were seeing. And both of them took one step further and said, what were the consequences of those microbes to that fetus? And we're able to show in a series of experiments, some occurring in the lab, some occurring um, in other um, in vivo type systems, they were able to show that they were it's important for developing tolerance in the immune system to those microbes. So I think what we're seeing is a number of us who were able to take a naive approach, which is scientists and physicians were called to do, have, have really come down on the side of saying there's something there. Understanding why it's low biomass is important and what keeps it that way is important and understanding what the functional consequences are, are important. But we've got to quit having an argument to which there's already an answer. The answer is there's clearly a low biomass community. I respect other scientists who've said, no, it's all contamination. But, but frankly, it, um, when others have gone back and looked at their data, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I really think that, that this is an example where we need to move on and really grapple with this notion of a womb with a view.
0: And I think that makes complete sense evolutionarily again as well, because if you look at historical data on how children do well in life from the beginning to the end, it is exposure. It is exposure, exposure, exposure to Mm -hmm. things that are non-toxigenic and things that are immune priming. So it would make absolute evolutionary sense that there is some low biomass or low number of bacteria there that are, containable and trainable to the human immune system. So I, I, I think you're exactly right. I would fall on your side completely. I don't think there should be sides as well. I agree, you know, as, as the science evolves, we'll continue to answer this question even better and then there'll be less controversy.
1: Well, so, and, so- I, and I think just, just from the very origins, there's also been just some really exceptional work done by a number of groups. It really started with Carlos Simone's lab in Spain. Um, looking at the endometrial microbiome or that lining of the uterus microbiome. And he was able to show pretty convincingly, um, and other groups have been able to build on this, that that early implantation of a fetus, a successful implantation of a, a, I should say, an embryo into that uterine lining depends upon microbes being there. Um, In fact, some of the same ones we see within the placenta. Now the placenta will take these bajillions of blood vessels and intercalate them into that lining of the uterus. So we have to remember not only um, is there reason to believe it can be kind of transmitted in utero, but it's also that the fetus is not implant, or the placenta is not implanting into a sterile space either. Um, And and in fact, we think that having a certain number and a certain type of bacteria there are key for successful implantation. So, so I think we're really kind of resolving this out and, and, and the sooner we can, we can all admit to being on the same page, I think the better off uh, humanity will be and we can really gap, grapple with the questions that matter the most.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think at this point, the news to use for the parents and clinicians is that the system was set up to purposely taste the environment, to learn right immune tolerance and metabolic ability. So I I think that's where it's going to continue to evolve scientifically for us to see. So let's pivot there, because I think the next stage of your research is where I want to go. Because, you know, for me, as a pediatrician, the number one thing I am seeing as a dysfunctional antecedent trigger, or what I call the root of disease for humans is food. Um, and how we are exposed to different forms of nutrients and for how long is it driving disease. So you've done a fair amount of research looking at how food affects the maternal microbiome, the maternal frame. And eventually we're going to talk about your HMO work that you published this year as well, which I think is fascinating as well. But let's go there. So if you were to say, hey, you know, in, in your clinic where you're an obstetrician uh, seeing patients, you know, and you're talking to a mom about what food you want them to eat. Let's talk about what your research showed and then how you translate that into your, your clinic ability to, to change behavior.
1: Yeah. So, so the first thing I want to say is I try very hard to avoid the blame the mom phenomenon.
0: I love that. And so
1: I I am a mother of um uh five, uh three I gave birth to, two I was lucky enough to marry into. Um, and um and so we get blamed for all kinds of things. Uh, (laughs) so first of all, I want to remove the blame on the on the mom because um it's really again the importance is the mom's job is this kind of communication um of what that outside world is going to look like to her developing fetus. But this story really begins um, with back when I was, you know, my residency training, there was data emerging out that kept saying over and over again, um, obesity is a major cause. Maternal obesity is a major cause of problems. And and I felt like we needed to understand that better. Um, Because one absolute truth remains. We don't become obese overnight and we cannot become, you know, we can't start suddenly shopping off the petite rack overnight either.
0: Correct.
1: But going from obese to non-obese in the setting of a pregnancy is impossible. It would be against medical advice to do that because that would involve such a tremendous amount of weight gain or weight loss that it's just not realistic nor helpful for anyone to even consider. In addition, we also know that our psychology is such that the more we perseverate on our body image, the less we lose sight of the value we bring into any situation and our capabilities of changing that. And and so I think a lot of us who practice in maternal fetal medicine and obstetrics have really tried to shift the discussion around nutrition. And we're lucky that our science backs us up on this. So we decided that one of the important things that we do is understand the difference between obesity in pregnancy and whether your weight gain is going up or it's going down, right? Because obesity is nothing other than a label. We put on your, your weight divided by your height. And also we understand That some women may have lost weight right before pregnancy, some women may be gaining weight in the context of pregnancy, and that's going to have a number of different factors weighing into it, including what they eat. So we really wanted to parse this question down just a little bit. And so we said, first of all, we need to get some reliable estimates around weight gain during pregnancy. And how do we estimate that based upon when a woman delivers and the rate at which she's doing it? And the second thing was we felt that we needed to really look at the diet as a key contributor to this. Fast forward through a lot of non-human primate research, human studies, and 20 years later, we finally gotten to the point where we say, you know what? It turns out it's not the obesity per se that's the problem. It's really the diet and very specifically the caloric density of the diet. What does that practically mean? It really means how much carbohydrate, sugar, and fat go into your what you eat every day. Um, and so, so we, um, in our non-human primate models, talk about it as a Western-style diet or a high-fat diet. They're kind of the same. They're a little bit different. Technically, a Western-style diet, when we talk about it scientifically, brings in that notion of some sugars and some carb in addition to the fat. And a high fad diet really talks about the fat. Um, I will say that in our animal experiments, we we get as close to being the same number of calories. We just change the quality of those calories. They're a little bit different, but for all intents and purposes, they're roughly the same amount of calories. And what we were able to show over many years with our primates is that if we had an obese animal and these are done in non-human primates, um, if that animal is obese at the start of pregnancy, but we correct her diet and put her onto a control breeding diet or kind of a normal healthy constituent diet, her offspring actually do really well. If we take a lean animal and we give it the Western style diet, her offspring have some rather remarkable changes. They develop non alcoholic fatty liver disease, they're hypothyroid, there are disruptions in their circadian uh, machinery, um, there are changes in their behavior and what they choose to eat. They have anxiety um, behaviors um, in work done by Eleanor Sullivan that's truly elegant that persist. And in fact, when we look at the microbiome, the epigenome across multiple different tissues, Um, And their behavior, what we found over these many years of work now, is that that diet signature from the mom from during pregnancy and lactation cannot be reversed. So if we take her offspring and wean them onto a controlled diet for up to two and a half years, those behavioral changes, those epigenomic changes, um, and those microbiome changes are never erased or reversed. And we can come in with with probiotics. We can do any number of different things that we can show subtle tweaks, but that is a lasting mark. Now, the good news on that is that nutrition is correctable during certain windows, but it looks like those windows are going to really be during the gestation and lactation period. And we can't separate that in our monkeys because, um, we keep the moms on the same diet while they're nursing and we cannot um, cross foster or or bottle feed our monkeys. So that's really where where that's come down. And then we've been able to go into human studies where we very, very carefully record what women are eating. um, And we even bring them into a feeding center in our breast milk work, and they're able to show the same thing. There's something unique about a fat-laden diet, um, whether it's just because evolutionarily, we we don't have a lot of experience with it. um, And so it's more of an insult than we'd expect. There's something special about it, that it leaves a mark, a footprint um, on the molecular machinery in that mom's baby that we just don't see that we can
0: erase. Yeah. And I think that dovetails with some other research that's been recently coming out that's fascinating. I know immunologically you have a PhD and you're going to be way ahead of my understanding on this, but I know the high saturated fat diet specifically the Westernized diet does increase antigenic presentation and toll-like receptor signaling. And then you follow up some of this research in the uh, molecular psychiatry with autism and one in five autistic kids now appears to have autoimmune disease in utero of mom that's driving the dysfunction of the brain by altering the development of certain neural pathways inside the brain of the fetus that therefore we're seeing down the road as pervasive development of developmental delay or autism. So I start to think about all these things in concert, like you're saying, mm-hmm. evolutionarily. Historically, we had these abilities to be tolerant, be mechanistically, you know, biosynthetically normal. And now all of a sudden, we've changed in the last 100 years, all of our you know, caloric intake as a processed, refined, sugar-based, fat-based food. And you look at Jerry Schulman's work and, and insulin right. resistance and how GLUT4 receptors aren't being translocated. And you start to see a web of, oh boy, this is quite incredible. And if it's happening, during the critical window like you're saying of the pre-pregnancy phase which i think is important right before conception and then that whole entire 10 month period and then afterwards it's 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 very very daunting right and i and i totally applaud your comments on don't blame moms because yeah. you know there's no value in that yet the value does come in education. I know Brigham right. and Women's in Mass General just recently published a study, um, Dr. Taveras, where they did right. a you know, a thousand patients versus 600 moms and did an intervention with education on diet. And I, and again, I, I, I can't hammer home the point enough. Obesity is not the problem. Mm-hmm. It is the food that's driving the inflammation that we see of as <sighs> obesity that's the problem. You could take easily a skinny person who eats the same food as the obese person. They metabolically don't gain the weight, but they're just as sick metabolically. So I think that's a very important news to use point for parents to hear the, 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 the body mass size is irrelevant. It is the antecedent foods that are going in that are completely relevant to the outcome that you and I are seeing. So, so your research has clearly shown that we have a problem of the food choice that, that parents are taking in specifically moms in this case, but then the children afterwards that therefore is driving the, the phenotype or what we see of as the outcome of the child metabolically. And as you stated very clearly, epigenetically, glo- globally in the in the ecosystem of the microbiome. So that has to be ground zero for me. And, that, and, and, and as I've thought about the reason why I named this podcast, what I did is because if we don't go right to where the root is, and that uh, to me, the root is mom then we don't have the ability to have long lasting effects. Like you just showed two and a half years out, you can't alter that easily. That's, that's not fun. Or,
1: so here's, here's, the, here's the black box glimmer. Of yeah. Black. So there, I want to say there are two things we don't know. Okay. We don't know whether or not um, in adolescence, there's a restat period. Um, or is it just an opportunity to make it even worse? So our data has not delved into that because we haven't moved through that kind of puberty period. And I think in general, almost no one's research does. It's a hugely neglected window to understand when, when we are gaining our own reproductive competency, what happens? Men and women, we have no idea, kind of is there, is there a reset mechanism that occurs? Do bad things only get worse? We have no idea. And, and I think that, that all of us who work in this development origins field have to acknowledge that, that we yeah. need to know what goes on in that adolescent window. And that's pivotally important. The second thing is, just because we can't correct something doesn't mean that the differences we're seeing don't have some adaptive value. And, and we started this off by saying, we are preparing our offspring, our children to live in a world that we didn't live in. Correct. And we have to have some faith in, in, in whatever faith system we choose to put it in, um, but we have to have some faith that there's more intelligent design within that system. And, and I think evolution is a huge part of that. So I do have faith that there's adaptation abilities within it. I also have faith that when given um, nutrition uh, that we can take in and we make those continued life choices, we certainly don't compound the problem. We cannot erase it, but we don't necessarily compound it. The good news to me is that it's a relatively simple problem to solve, right? Right. We have literally solved far more complex problems when you think about what we have done in the last, let's just not even take the last hundred years, let's just take the last 20 years and looked at how we have changed the delivery of information to become more or less, you know, in real time. I am confident we can solve this nutrition problem should we as a society choose to do it.
0: And I would agree entirely.
1: Yeah, and I think that there are a couple of secrets to it. One of them is we have to embrace the fact that we are at an environmental crisis. Um, And we're not going to talk today about our data around environmental chemical exposures that shows some very similar things. But we have to acknowledge that, that we are at a crossroads on climate change and environmental crisis. And the good news is that part of the solution of that can also help us with our nutrition. And part of that solution is we need to get back to source foods and we need to be not, you know, not shipping strawberries 4,000 miles in the air because we can't, you know, we somehow think we have to eat strawberries year round, right? There's other things we can do. And so I think in a nutshell, one of the things that, that I think is important for us all to consider is the source of our foods, how we obtain it. What it means for for the environment and other species in doing so, and I think that helps us. I like to break it down simple as a rainbow diet, right? If you kind of hit the colors of the rainbow more or less every day, um, and minimize your meat and fat intake, you're pretty much going to be on track with nutrition. I mean, we try to make it a whole lot more complicated than that, but if you just eat more veggies than you do Meat, you eliminate out the carbs and you know, watch your sugars, including fruit. It's not that complicated, right?
0: You're right, you're right, it's not rocket science. And we actually have a, 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 a sticker that we hand out to all kids in the office. And it's a plate because I'm not a big fan of the the government's my plate, but we made our own. And h- half of the plate is vegetables. A quarter of the plate is whole fruit. Everything's whole foods yeah. first of all. Then it's lean lean meats in in a, in a quarter, which is fish predominantly, and then some others. And then there's a little bit of of the whole grains and seeds and everything. But it, it is not rocket science. That the, the for me the big problem, and you stated very clearly, is we don't have the willpower yet at the government level to make the decisions that help people. Not have food deserts and all the other things that potentially put them at risk for having this poor quality, high caloric, dense food that drives systemic damage, what we call inflammation, which COVID has shown clearly why America is the worst in the world. So yeah, totally agree. Yeah,
1: well, and and you know, I'm, I'm in Texas now, um, but I'm Norwegian by birth. And so I come from a long line and live in a state where people um, don't feel we have to wait for the government to tell us what to do. Like, if we've been on Earth for more than 10 minutes and our IQ is above 70, we know what to do. That's so, right. you know, I think, and and it's hard, right? I, and I admit, especially when I'm when I'm tired and have been working really hard, either clinically or scientifically, I love to have a McDonald's French fries and a Diet Coke. That is like a go-to treat for me. But but when I'm being disciplined about my role in this world. Um, I'll kind of back that up a notch and say, you know, I wouldn't mind a little bit of broccoli and and uh, a few carrots. That sounds pretty good too. So I yeah, think that yeah. those are the things. And then um, maybe we should, do you want to just close out with our little bit of work around the milk? Um, yes. Before I run out of time.
0: That'll be perfect. I would love it. Because I, I think this this year's publication that you had on HMOs and, and dietary influences is fantastic. So let's do that. Let's pivot there, then we'll close out.
1: Perfect. So um, so we wanted to take this into that postnatal interval. And there's there's a longer story around human milk oligosaccharides. And I'm going to shorten that as calling them HMOs. But I don't want to be human-centric in this, because it turns out that all mammalians, milk-producing species, have oligosaccharides in their milk. And these human milk oligosaccharides um, uh, they're really food and fodder for bacteria. So there's certainly substrates that bacteria can use, but they also can be decoys for pathogenic bacteria in the infant gut. It, they're very interesting molecules um, because we it takes energy for us to make human milk oligosaccharides. And, and to this day, we don't know exactly all the places that they're made in the human body. Um, that'll be something for several months from now when we finish up some really exciting work we have going on, but, um, but we make them and we can't do anything with them. They provide no energy for us. They cost us energy to make these human milk oligosaccharides, but we can't digest them. You know, they don't make our liver healthy. We can't turn them into, you know, skin cells. They really have no purpose for us, but we make them because they're food and fodder for bacteria. So, we asked a relatively simple question, which was how do we change which human milk oligosaccharide profile we make in our milk? Um, because they can have different fucosylated species and sialylated species, which is a fancy way of saying the, the biochemical hooks we put on them have implications because bacteria have different enzymes. Some bacteria can do things with sialylated HMOs, some bacteria can do things with fucosylated HMOs, but they're not necessarily the same. So, we said, what changes your HMO profile in your milk? So, we brought some women in and we did what we call domicile feeding studies. So, we're going to control everything that they eat. Um, They were in that kind of four to six week postpartum interval, bring them into our Children's Nutrition Research Center. We absolutely control their diet and we're going to make it a glucose versus a galactose rich diet, or we're going to make it a fat versus a carb rich diet. And there are two different cohorts of women. And then we're going to flip flop them, so each woman is her own control. Long story short, what we're able to show is that we, in very short order, within 24 to 72 hours, by changing that woman's diet, changing her carbohydrate source, her fat source, her glucose or her galactose, we could change the HMO species in her milk in very predictable ways. So the glucose galactose switch change or sialylated the carb fat switch, change the fucosylated, phy- and there were ramifications for that on the content of the, mi- of the microbiome in her milk, specifically the functional content of the microbiome in her milk. So it was a really interesting example that to me says there is an evolutionary history here. And that is that we have developed these intermediate mechanisms for this communication um, and it has, it brings in the microbiome. So it's one of the kind of first examples we have out there where we change what we eat. It influences the HMOs, which ones are there and how much of them are there, which in turn changes the microbiome. So it's not a direct my nutrition to a microbe. It goes through an intermediary and it's the human milk oligosaccharides. And it's just a very, very interesting example of where you have to argue that there's some evolutionary crony. Now, I'll also point out that as women, our job is not just to be mothers, right? We bring things to this world way beyond our role as a mother. And it's actually really important that we survive motherhood. And and again, on the back end of, of our oldest being 27, it's a miracle we ever do. But we also think that one of the things that happens um, with these HMOs is they may also be important for, for helping regulate that we don't get things like mastitis. So one of the things that we observed was when we changed our diet and changed this HMO speciation, things like staphylococcus species that can drive mastitis were also influx. So we have to remember that some of these connections aren't just for populating out that infant gut. They may serve important roles for things like preventing mastitis in the mom, which is fundamentally important for her health, independent of the rest of it. So I think it's, you know, brings us back full circle to thinking about how these connections go. How do we continue this communication over time? Now, for all of those, all of those moms out there, I will say I fully acknowledge. That when our kids hit adolescence, somehow we lose this communication ability with them, but there's hope you regain it as they get older.
0: I love it. That's so true. You have you have laid out a perfect framework for parents to understand, I think, the evolution of our combined existence between mom, child, and then that carries through a whole lifetime of, of beauty together. So one last question. I ask everybody this, and then I'm going to let you go, and I'm so grateful of your time. I ask everybody something about if you had one golden ticket to offer the federal government to change a policy that would have the most profound effect on human health. Mine is change school food. I absolutely think, so school food is atrocious and we need to change the quality and quantity of what they're getting. What would you say in as quick as you can so I can let you go?
1: Um, That uh, we need to have immediate access for women, um, not only when they're pregnant, but before they're getting pregnant and for the year or two afterwards. Having women have to constantly sign up for Medicaid, CHIP, other forms of insurance around the time of reproduction is a fool's errand. And, Amen. and creating open access. The problem in our country is we tie health insurance to employment. And, and so the people who have the employment are the ones who get health insurance. Well, that doesn't work out real well when you're talking about women who may not be working outside the home because that's a full-time job and a half. Um, and it certainly doesn't work with children. Right. So we yeah. need to stop that. But then once we set them onto those health insurance roles, forcing them to wait in endless lines to go through the recertification process, to re-sign up for Medicaid on a regular basis, again, is a fool's errand. I don't have to do that when I sign up for my annual benefits and an open enrollment periods in my work. You shouldn't force women and children to do that. And that would really go an awfully long way in helping us out um, as we get through this hurdle. And exactly then I 100% so. agree with you on the nutrition front. Um, But also, I think, you know, the the other thing is reemphasizing the value and importance of local farming practices um, and and appreciating how crucially important bringing food sources to the community you live in in an environmentally and ethically responsible manner.
0: Love everything you say. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your hour, your time, your intelligence, your passion, your desire, it comes through clearly. I think all of the parents and clinicians listening today are gonna to absolutely love this conversation and thank you for everything.
1: And thank you. You know, forums like this give us a chance to just spout off. And so if any, if I've uh, not made anything clear or, or let folks down, please don't hesitate to reach out. And, and I'm always happy to hit
0: stop, rewind. I've changed my mind. So <laughs> I job. love that. Open mind is the key to life. Thank you so That's much.
1: Right. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, folks. A fascinatingly amazing conversation with Dr. Agard. She really does an amazing job of laying out evolutionary understanding of why we are where we are versus where we are supposed to be. We still have a long way to go to understand all of these nuances of health. But it is very clear to me, and I think you will have understood that now after listening to her excellent science, that there are antecedent upstream targets that we can go after that will help the microbiome of mom and the microbiome of baby to be the healthiest it can be to develop natural immune tolerance, to develop normal metabolic pathways and activities to keep weight gain where it should be, to help to have brain function, and all the other what I call neurometabolic immunologic pathways that help us become the best versions of ourselves throughout our lives. And so therefore, what are those upstream targets? And clearly, diet is probably the most important one an agrarian, whole foods, predominantly vegetarian diet spiked with good quality meats and fish and nuts and seeds and all of these wonderful things that we're supposed to eat, as opposed to the American standard high-sugar, high-fat diet that drives immune dysfunction, dysregulation, metabolic dysfunction, dysregulation, and now we know microbiome dysregulation. So all of these upstream targets now based on the mechanisms, are where we should be putting our effort into helping patients and mothers and children understand how to affect change for their benefit and for the benefit of everyone in their family. So I'm going to leave you here as we prepare for the next installment of the podcast with Dr. Tracy Shafizada. And we're going to talk a bit about the microbes that exist within the baby and how they are effectively consuming the specific sugars in mom's breast milk that are fantastically useful for the baby and for human health. So with that, I'm going to sign off today, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Agard, mm-hmm. and just always remember to hug those kids. Bye. Bye. Now for the obligatory disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. So there you have it, folks, a fantastic conversation with Dr. William Parker. He is uh, an exceptional researcher and has really blazed some trails down roads. I think we really need to go down as we attempt to stem the tide of autoimmune and allergic type disease. And for everyone listening, I apologize again for the quality of the audio. But the information provided is just so excellent. I hope you made it through. Either way, it is always great to have you on the Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. Thank you so much for your time. And as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the formation of a patient-provider relationship. Have a great day.